we haven't had the chance to meet yet, and it's great to have you with us today. We are continuing the sermon series that we've been in for a few weeks now, looking at the Beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes which Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5, which describe how we enter the kingdom of God, how we live in the kingdom of God. And today we come to the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, if we were to try to come up with the opposite of this beatitude, it might be, blessed are the vengeful, for they get even. Or blessed are the forceful, for they get their way. Or blessed are the unforgiving, for they win. Or blessed are the selfish, for they take care of themselves. And the truth is, these anti-beatitudes, they more accurately describe our world without God. They more accurately describe our own hearts apart from God. In fact, I think what Muhammad Ali said in his autobiography, it is reflective of the, the human condition. Here's what he said. He said, I'm a fighter. I believe in the eye for an eye business. I'm no cheek turner. I've got no respect for a man who won't hit back. You kill my dog, you better hide your cat. Now, it's quite blunt and forthright, but there's something in that that we would have to say lurks within us. There's something in that that I kind of like. Not just the idea of Muhammad Ali going after cats, though that sounds entertaining. I'm going to get some emails for that one. <laughs> I just saw the person that's going to email me nodding. <laughs> it's this idea of getting even. This is something that lurks within us. William Thackeray um, writes in his novel, Vanity Fair, he says, revenge may be wicked, but it's natural. And we could say the same about unforgiveness and selfishness. These things reflect our world and our heart. And this is why Jesus' words about mercy are so profound. This is why Jesus' words about mercy are so compelling. I mean, if, if you were to ask most people, do you want to live in a world that is marked by revenge, unforgiveness, selfishness? Or do you want to live in a world that is marked by forgiveness? compassion, mercy. I think I know the answer that most people would give. There is something even deeper within us that is drawn to mercy. Even just yesterday, there was a, a group of people from our church that descended upon the homes of a couple of other people in our church who had their houses flooded last weekend. And this group of people showed up, they carried furniture out of the house, they ripped down plaster off the walls. They cleaned up. They did runs to the tip and back. It was a beautiful picture of mercy. And there's something in us that is drawn to that. We want to live in a world of mercy. And the good news is that this is what God wants as well. This is what God is doing in the world. He is creating a people marked by 
mercy. And this is what this fifth beatitude is all about. Now today, we actually come to the halfway point in our series. And this fifth beatitude is a little bit like a pivot point. Jesus shifts the focus from vertical to horizontal. So far, the first four beatitudes have been largely about our relationship to God. They've been about the way that we enter into relationship with God. Remember, Jesus talked firstly about becoming poor in spirit, recognizing our poverty before God, which leads us to mourn over our condition before God. It leads us to be brokenhearted over our brokenness, which leads us to become meek. We we humble ourselves before God. We hand over control of our lives to God, which leads us to develop a new appetite. We begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to know God. We want to obey God. So far, it's been about our relationship to God. Today, though, as Jesus begins the second half of the list, he shifts from talking about our condition to our character. He shifts from focusing on our relationship to God to our relationship with others. And this is always the progression and the order in the Bible. It begins with our relationship to God, which then affects our relationship with others. Think about when Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law, the whole Old Testament law? Which is the greatest, Jesus? What did he say? First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, vertically. Then, love your neighbor as yourself, horizontally. This is always the way it goes. This is the pattern in the Bible, and this is the pattern in the Beatitudes as well. And Jesus says, once we enter into the kingdom of God, enter into relationship with God, the first characteristic that we can expect to see manifest in our lives is mercy. Mercy is what will begin to flow out of the transformed heart. Mercy is what will begin to mark the children of God. In fact, there's a a theologian, a British theologian named A.W. Pink, and he describes the Beatitudes as the birthmark of those who belong to God's kingdom. I love that. Mercy is a birthmark of all God's children. Mercy is one of the things that mark us as belonging to God. And so it's incredibly important that we understand what is mercy? What does it look like in our lives and why does it matter? They're the questions that we're going to dig into today. In fact, two questions, very simple. Number one, what is mercy? And number two, why does it matter? So let's begin with that first question. What is mercy? Now, if someone was to ask you that question, what is mercy? How would you respond? How would you define mercy? This was the the challenge I had before me as I sat down on Monday to start reading for this sermon. And I've got to tell you, it was a big challenge. Because mercy is a big and rich and varied word. It's used in a lot of different contexts and in a lot of different ways. But I've got some fancy Bible software that helped me to kind of trace this theme throughout Scripture. And I've got some good commentators. and, And they help to see that when you look at this word mercy, there are two main themes that begin to emerge. There are two main threads that paint a picture of what mercy looks like. We might call them the two hands of mercy. I heard this idea from a pastor named Guy Mason, and I like it. The two hands of mercy. If you're taking notes, the first hand of mercy is the hand of forgiveness. The hand of forgiveness. Mercy is forgiving those who wrong us. Mercy is overlooking those who offend us. 
It's being merciful to those who have hurt us. So, uh, for example, there's a story that's often told about a mother that went before Napoleon, the great French emperor. And she went before Napoleon because her son was due to be executed. And she went to Napoleon to ask for a pardon. Now, the mother goes before Napoleon, and Napoleon points out that this was his second offence, and that justice demanded that he receive the death penalty. The mother replied to this French emperor, I don't ask for justice, I plead for mercy. To which Napoleon objected, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. And she said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask. And her son, the story goes, was granted the pardon, because this is what mercy is. It's pardon for the guilty. It's the same thing we see in the Bible. For example, Psalm 51, David writes, says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Now, what's he asking for? What does mercy look like here, according to David? Blot out my transgressions. In other words, forgive my sins, remove my guilt. Now, you might know that David wrote this psalm after the worst moment of his life, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged for the murder of her husband Uriah. David was confronted by the prophet Nathan and he was brokenhearted over his sin. He was convicted of his sin and so he goes before God and he asks for mercy. And as you read on in the psalm, you see that God grants him mercy. God forgives him his sin. Why? Because from cover to cover, the Bible reveals to us that God is merciful. That God is gracious and forgiving. And I think we're kind of used to hearing this, but we sometimes lose our sense of awe and wonder at this. Throughout the Bible, God is revealed as merciful. For example, you might remember in Exodus 32, after Israel made the golden calf and sinned so horrifically against God. Moses intercedes on their behalf and God reveals his character to Moses. And this is what God himself says about himself. Exodus 34 verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's the same truth we read in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, he describes God as being rich overflowing, abundant in mercy. Mercy. Now, God is, is absolutely rich. He owns everything and everyone. But this is the only place in the Bible where God is described as being rich in something in particular. And is rich in mercy. Now, this does not mean that God doesn't care about sin and evil. That he doesn't see it. That he won't deal with it. I'm so glad that God sees what is happening in Ukraine. I'm so glad that God sees what is happening in the dark corners of our world. I'm so glad that he sees, that he cares, and that he'll ultimately deal with it because he is a holy God and a just God. But God also wants us to know something else about him, that he is rich in mercy. In fact, as I heard another pastor put it this week, he wants us to know that when our sin pierces his skin, 
the first thing that flows out is not anger, but mercy and grace and love. And of course, we we know this to be true ultimately because the river of mercy flowing out of God's heart, it took shape as a man among us. You know, when Paul describes the the arrival, the coming of Jesus in Titus chapter 2, he describes it this way. He says, when grace appeared. In other words, the appearing of Jesus was the appearing of grace. The ministry of Jesus was the embodiment of mercy. If you want to see what it means that God is rich in mercy, look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We see it in the way that he talked. We see it in the way that he treated sinners, the way that he moved towards sufferers. And of course, ultimately, we see it in the cross. We see the mercy of God in, on display in the death of Jesus. Because the sinless one is standing in the place of the sinful. The innocent one is dying in the place of the guilty. Let me explain it to you this way. You might remember back in 2015 that Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran, as members and ringleaders of the Bali Nine, they were executed in Indonesia for drug trafficking. Now, in the months leading up to their execution, there was a, a kind of grassroots campaign in Australia called the Mercy Campaign. And their goal was to petition the president of Indonesia to grant clemency, to grant a pardon for these two young men. Now, obviously, the the campaign failed in its goal, but I want you to imagine for a moment if it went a little bit differently. Imagine if the president of Indonesia called a press conference and he said, these two men on death row, they committed a terrible, terrible crime. It's a crime that deserves punishment. And here in Indonesia, we believe in justice. Death is the punishment for this crime and the punishment will be paid. But then imagine if the the president leaned a little bit closer. He said, but I love these two young men. I care for these two young men. And so in order to uphold the law, in order to satisfy justice, I will take their place before the firing squad. I will put my life forward as payment for what they have done. Now, if that was the way it was to go, there would be a worldwide scandal, worldwide shock. And yet even this pales in comparison to the gospel. That the God of the universe, the judge of everyone, that he willingly takes our place. That he willingly pays our price, receives our penalty. And this means so many different things for you and I, but here's the most important. You can receive mercy from God as a gift because of what Jesus has done. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. But that's the point. It's mercy. So have you ever asked God for mercy? He has plenty of it to give. He is rich in mercy. There is more mercy in God than there is sin in you. So why not ask God for mercy today? Why not pray that prayer of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, blot out my transgressions. It's a prayer that he loves to answer. What about for those of us who have already received mercy from God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus? What about those of us who have already received forgiveness from God through Jesus? 
Well, as those of us who have received mercy from God, God is now calling us to extend mercy to others. As those of us who have been forgiven by God, God is now calling us to extend the hand of forgiveness to others. And, you know, we see this truth right throughout the Bible in so many different ways. The Lord's Prayer, for example, but perhaps the best example is in a story, a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18. He tells a story about this servant that has a massive debt forgiven, billions of dollars by today's standards. The king who he owes, he just cancels the debt completely, gone. But this servant then goes out and he comes across someone who owes him some money, far less, it's a few thousand dollars, and he refuses to forgive him. Now the king hears about this and he's furious and he has this servant dragged before him, put in prison, and he says to him, he says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And Jesus' point is simple, forgiven people forgive. Those who have received mercy show mercy. Or as an author named Paul Tripp puts it, Mercy means I am so deeply grateful for the forgiveness I have received that I cannot help offer you the same. Forgiven people forgive. Now, I know that this raises some questions. For example, does this mean that Christians are to always forgive? Are we to show mercy in every situation? I mean, can a Christian boss fire an underperforming employee? What about a Christian judge that is required to uphold and to enforce the law? Should Christian parents discipline their children? Should a Christian wife remain with an abusive husband? These are important questions, and so it's important for us to point out that while we are called to pursue mercy, we're also called to practice justice. And I think we see this really beautifully side by side in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This well-known passage of Scripture. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to do what is right, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We are called to love mercy, to show compassion, but also to act justly and to do what is right. This shows us that mercy is not sugarcoating sin. Mercy is not putting up with abuse. Mercy is not overlooking corruption. In fact, sometimes the most merciful thing we can do it is to bring someone to justice. It's to correct the sin, to expose abuse. It's to confront corruption. Not with the goal of, of cancelling and condemning and destroying, but with the goal of redeeming and restoring. And so, yes, a Christian boss can fire an underperforming employee, but they do it with care and concern. Yes, a Christian judge will enforce the law, but they'll do it fairly and impartially. Yes, Christian parents can and should discipline their children, but they'll do it without being harsh or overbearing. And no, a Christian wife does not and should not endure abuse, because it's love and truth. It's mercy and justice. This is the, the first hand of mercy. It's the hand of forgiveness. 
But as you look at this word and the way it unfolds in the Bible, you also see a second thread, a second hand begin to emerge. And it's also the hand of compassion. It's help for those in need, those in distress, those who are suffering. And again, you see this in lots of places in the Bible, but perhaps most clearly in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Now, don't have time to read the whole story, but basically there's a Jewish man. He is beaten up, um, flogged, left for dead on the side of the road. And in the story, along comes a religious leader, a priest, a pastor. And you kind of expect him to stop and to help this man that's laying on the side of the road. But he sees him and then crosses the road and keeps on walking. Along comes someone else. And again, it's another religious leader. It's a Levite. It's a worship leader. But they do the same thing, cross the road and, and walk away. Finally, along comes someone else, a Samaritan, an enemy of the Jewish people. And he sees this man and he stops and he begins to help him. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn and he pays the costs for his treatment. And at the end of the story, the actions of this Samaritan man, they are summarized using the word mercy. All that this Samaritan man does for the man on the side of the road is mercy. And so his actions give us a good picture of what compassion, what mercy looks like. The first thing we see is that mercy sees. Mercy sees need. It sees distress. It does not ignore. It is not blind. It sees the need. Now, this sounds really basic, but it's important because it's possible to see and not really see. Let me give you an example. When I'm walking through the shops and I see people up ahead in the middle and I can see them standing there looking for someone to talk to, looking for someone to, to sell something to or to get support for, here's what I do. I avoid eye contact at all costs. <laughs> or I walk really, really fast as if I'm in a hurry. Or if I'm holding one of my kids, and this is one of the real great blessings of children, yeah. Sorry, got to go to the toilet, got to keep going, apologies, you know, keep walking. Don't look at me like that, don't pretend you don't do it as well. <laughs> see, it's possible to see, but not really see. Because if we see and we don't stop, then we don't really see. And you see, mercy sees the need, it doesn't ignore it, it stops. Now, don't worry, I'm not saying that you need to stop for the people in the middle of the shopping center. Mercy sees the need, but what else does mercy do? It also feels the need. Look at verse 33 of Luke chapter 10. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Other translations say he had compassion on him. It's a word that literally means to be moved in your inward parts, to feel it in your gut. Now, why does this matter? Why is it important that we feel and have empathy for the suffering of others? Why can't we just kind of see the need and meet the need? Why do we need to be moved by it? Well, uh, partly the answer is because God is moved by our need. God didn't simply just see our need and then dispassionately meet our need. God is moved by our condition, by our suffering. You know, when Jesus was on earth in Matthew 9, we're told, when he looked around at the crowds of people around him, look what we, look what we read, verse 36, he had compassion. It's the same word. He felt it in his guts. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep 
without a shepherd. When Jesus looked at sinners and sufferers like us, he didn't roll his eyes. What have they got to complain about? He didn't throw his hands up in the air. He was moved. He had compassion. And this is what our God is like. He's not cold and indifferent. His heart is drawn to us in our suffering. Because mercy sees, mercy feels. But that's not all that mercy does. If mercy was to stop there, it wouldn't be true mercy. Because as we go on to see, mercy acts. Mercy goes out to meet the need. This is what the Samaritan man does. He doesn't just kind of feel for this man from a distance. He doesn't kind of walk past this man and say, well, I'll pray for you, brother. When he gets home, he doesn't get angry and start a petition about crime on the streets of Jerusalem. Now, they're all good things. They're not bad things, but that's not what he does. Verse 34, he went to him. He didn't stay at a distance. He drew near to him to meet his need. Now, I think it's easy for us to, to kind of imagine, well, you know, it's easy for this Samaritan man. He's probably walking down the road. He probably didn't have much to do. I don't think that's the case at all. This was incredibly costly for this man. Costly emotionally. It was costly economically. It was costly in his schedule. And it was costly socially. This man, this Jewish man, was an enemy of his people. It was incredibly costly for him to stop and do what he did. And the truth is, mercy is almost never going to be convenient. It's almost never going to pop up in our day when we've got lots of time and, and maybe lots of spare money. Mercy is almost always going to cost us. It's going to involve more than sharing a Facebook post. It's going to involve real people with real mess and real needs. Because this is what this Samaritan man did. And now we, we can begin to get a better picture of what mercy looks like. In fact, if we get back to our question at the start, well, what is mercy? I think we can put together a, a bit of a definition. And this is what I would say it is. Mercy is open eyes, sees the need, soft heart, feels the need, and willing hands, meets the need. To help those in need around us and to forgive those who wrong us, even at great cost to ourselves. Open eyes, soft hearts, willing hands to help those in need around us, to forgive those who wrong us, even at great cost to ourselves. So friends, are you a merciful person? Are you pursuing and practicing mercy? You know, as I wrestled and, and was confronted by this question this week, I had to admit that I, I fall a long way short. I've got a long way to go, and I'm asking God to help me in this area. Now, you might be sitting there, and you might be wondering, thinking, well, well why bother? I mean, why should we be merciful? Why should we forgive others, help others, especially if it's going to cost us and be inconvenient for us? It brings us to our second and final question. Why does it matter? You know, there are some good practical reasons for us to show mercy. The first simply is that revenge is so damaging to us. Now, let's admit, to get even with others, to, to, to hit back those who hit us, it, it can give us a temporary thrill. It can feel good for a little while. That's all it is, temporary. And if you go down that, down that road too far, you end up trapped in a cycle of bitterness and anger and hatred. And it's only mercy that can set us free from that cycle. 
It's the same with compassion. I mean, to live a life that's focused only on yourself, only on your own needs, doesn't actually lead to a life of joy and freedom. It leads to a small, shriveled life. And so when Jesus invites us into a life of mercy, to forgive others, to help others, we might at first hear it as a burden. Oh, Jesus, just asking so much of us. But he's actually inviting us into a life of true freedom, true joy and true purpose. So there are good practical reasons for us to to be merciful. But Jesus gives us an, an even more important one. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The reason we show mercy to others is because in the end, it is the merciful who receive mercy from God. Now, you might say, wait a minute, does that mean that we earn God's mercy? Will I get to heaven one day and say, well, God, I was merciful during my life. I forgave others. I helped others in need. Now you owe me your mercy. Of course, the answer is no. We cannot earn God's mercy. Rather, when we show mercy to others, it's evidence that we have received God's mercy. When we forgive others, it's evidence that we have received God's forgiveness. Remember, mercy is the birthmark of God's children. And if we don't have the birthmark of mercy in our lives, it might be that we haven't been born into God's family. Or to to use another analogy, if you plant an apple seed in the ground, and you look after it, and you do all the right things, what's going to grow? An apple tree with apples on it. Well, if you plant the seed of God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's grace into the heart of a human being, then mercy and grace and forgiveness will begin to grow on the branches of that life. See, our actions don't earn God's mercy. Our actions reveal whether we have received God's mercy. Our actions reveal the state of our heart. And if your heart is cold and unforgiving and harsh and judgmental towards others, it might reveal that you have not fully appreciated the extravagance of God's grace and God's mercy to you. God deeply cares about the way that we treat others. So let me close with an important question. Where in your life can you be merciful? Who can you show mercy to this week? Who can you show compassion to? Who would be blessed by your help? Who who has a need that that you could meet? What about forgiveness? Who can you extend the hand of forgiveness to? It's not easy. It's costly. But it's the path of mercy. It's the path that Jesus walked for you and for me. And it's the path that he now calls us to follow. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your extravagant mercy to us through Jesus. Thank you that you have so freely extended the hand of forgiveness 
and the hand of compassion and help to us through your Son and by your Spirit. Lord, would you help us to increasingly become a merciful people, to become a merciful church, where we freely welcome the outsider, where we freely forgive those who wrong us, where we freely help those in need, because in doing so, we put your glory and your goodness and your grace and your mercy on display. Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do and help us to walk in the path that you have laid out for us, the path of mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.